Welcome everyone to our second talk in our series for the decade of, to commemorate the decade of centenaries. This talk is going to be delivered by Darlene Meskel. And we came across Darlene when Evelyn Whelan, you know Evelyn of Evelyn's of Whelan's shop, yes. Evelyn told me that there was this American lady, Darlene Meskel, up at the old Roman farm, which is up O'Brien's Lane, past uh, Pat Rowland's house, his current house, Evelyn's husband. And he, she said she's written this book on the Mescos in that lived in Ballina and went to Castle Con. And the lady's name was Darlene, and she was American. Anyway, I found Darlene, and then because we knew where the house in question here we're talking about, it's on the main street, was on the main street of Ballina, we decided to put a building history sign on this building, and it's the house that is beside Father Ted's house, beside the bungalow, between the bungalow and Mills's house. So it's where Deirdre Griffin, Deirdre McKeown lives now. So that kind of purpley, she painted a pur purpley colour. That's the house that was built on the site of the Mescal house. So Darlene kindly wrote the text and selected the photo for this building history sign. So now I'll hand you over to the lady of the evening. So this is Darlene Mescal. Married to Paddy Meskel. Good evening, everyone. Thanks to Deborah and Arlene, and to the Bellana, and to the Killaloo Bellana Local History Society. This is my challenge to <laughs> pronounce that. For inviting me to speak during the decade, uh, the celebration of centenaries. And I thank you all for coming tonight. As Deborah mentioned, I'm Darlene Meskel, and married to Patty of the Castle Connor Meskels. I'm delighted to tell you my story and uh, will hold questions till the end. Um, I hope you will all be very eager to learn more and also share any information you might have. I suspect there's information that's been circulating in the community that I haven't heard yet, so I'm looking forward to learning more. 102 years ago, this was the seminal event that took the Mescal family from Ballina to Castle Carmel, just on the road in County Limerick. It was one of the first stories I heard when I met the family some 35 years ago. During the height of the, here's what they told me, during the height of the War of Independence, they said Grandfather John Mescal was attacked in his home on the river in Ballina by the Black and Tans. The raiders dragged John out of his house and meant to shoot him, but he jumped over the wall in his nightshirt, zigzagged back and forth across the railroad tracks, and swam away down the shed. So they forced the family out of the house and burned it down, and that's where the oral history ended. I asked questions for more details, uh, but no one seemed to have anything more than that to offer. So I decided to find out for myself. I met with um, Killaloo historian, the late Sean Kears, who very kindly shared his research with me and that's what started the ball rolling. I met with um, the surviving Mescals and found out what I could from them. I read book and newspaper accounts and met with Patton and uh, Eveline Rowan, who live in Valley Corrigan. 
their family played a part in the story and they shared the version that was passed down to them. So after all looking into this from every angle I could figure, uh, here's a story I learned about John Meskel and his family. John was born in 1874. He was the son of Patrick Meskel, who was a bootmaker who lived and worked on Mary Street at Balls Bridge in Limerick City. John's mother was Lucy Mackey, the oldest daughter of Elizabeth and Anthony Mackey of Castle Connell. But John was raised in the city, walking from his home at Balls Bridge down to St. Munchen's College on Henry Street, where he received a fine education. His father and grandfather were well-regarded boot and shoemakers. They were called uh, actually cord wainers, not cobblers, because they made boots as opposed to just repairing shoes. But by the end of the 1800s, the bootmaking industry was becoming almost entirely mechanized. Even if John wanted to work to keep his father's shop going, the business was suffering. So he went to, so he was sent to Castle Connell to work with his uncle, Anthony Mackey. His mother's younger brother, who was running all the Mackey family businesses and primarily operating eel weirs all along, all along the Shannon at Castle Connell, at Killaloo, Melick, and Athlone. A little bit about Anthony Mackey. He was born in 1851 in Castle Connell. And in the latter part of the 19th century, Anthony Mackey was one of the wealthiest businessmen in County Limerick. One of seven sons and four daughters of a middle-class shopkeeper in Castle Connell, he inherited the bulk of his parents' estate, including a large home that had housed lodgers at one time, a shop, a pub, and the lease of the Shannon Eelweirs. He expanded his enterprise over time and acquired much of the farmland, bog land, and real estate in the village. He was always willing to take disputes to court, and he was often taken to court by others. Finally, disgruntled employees would later lock him out of the fishery, and they set up the Castle Connell Soviet, which it took no less than Countess Markovich, who was then the uh, Minister for Labor, to close it down. So Anthony Mackey was a, uh, an advanced nationalist in 1899. He was well known for his political beliefs, and he was uh, well regarded nonetheless. He was elected to the very first Limerick County Council and chosen to be its vice chair. Fifteen years later, he was elected to be the first Sinn Féin member. But here's a really interesting thing to know about Anthony Mackey. He was one of the key leaders of the secret society, the Irish Republican Brotherhood. The police believed that at one point he was the uh, IRB center for Limerick. And he was very close to well-known Fenians like John O'Leary, John Daly, John McBride, and to other, import, other important figures of the day like um, Maud Gunn and 
William Butler Yeats. So this is the guy that John Meskell went to work for. He must have figured out a way to stay in Anthony's good graces because um, by 1895, at just 21 years old, John was the foreman of Mackey's fishing crew at Castle Common. And um, by 1901, at age 26 or 27, he was the manager of Mackey's most productive eel fishery at Killaloo. The, weir, the, the uh, eel weir at Killaloo that extended into the Shannon just south of the Lakeside Hotel. And you can see the fishery over here. That fishery sent thousands of tons of live eels every year from Killaloo to Billingsgate Market and other fish markets in London. And that's where his, his wealth really came from. But John worked very well with Anthony and had a successful career as a manager of the Killaloo fishery. In 1909, he married Mary McNamara of O'Brien's Bridge. They set up housekeeping in a house on Main Street, Ballina. It's just about directly across the river here. And they had, uh, they raised a growing family of five children and lived with his mother, Lucy, until she died in 1917. The house backed onto the river overlooking the bridge a few hundred yards away. It was owned by James McHale. You've all probably heard of the name somewhere around here. Um, who was the husband of John's first cousin, Emma. It was a semi-detached house connected at the gable end to a house in which Dr. Paul Ryan, the local medical officer, lived. Um, Dr. Ryan, in 1915, accidentally killed his colleague, Dr. Julio Page Burke, by serving him poisonous liniment that was being kept in a whiskey bottle. Deborah told this story. She held a talk here a while ago and uh, wrote a piece about it for the journal. So that story is out and about. Then, after Dr. Ryan lost his job, moved away in 1919. The local Catholic curate moved in, Father James Russell, but I'll have more to say about him later. Here's the house. The wall of his yard, or the haggard, is off to the left, and the white cottages are across the street. Underneath this is a photo taken more recently by a local photographer. You can see the Maroon House was built in the 1990s on the same property. Ironically, this house is now owned by Dee Griffin, who is a granddaughter of the McHughes. Um, so that's where we're talking about, right across the river. Now, just to take a minute and back up and speak a little bit about what was going on at the time, which I know everybody is pretty familiar with the, um, with the events of a hundred years ago. Um, the War of Independence was raging and it was especially active in Munster. Skirmishes between the IRA 
and British forces grew more frequent as the war became much more intense throughout 1920. Early that year, the British government realized that the local Irish um, RIC, the local Irish police force, could not contain the situation, so they recruited ex-military as the Black and Tans, who were sent over in March to beef up the local RIC forces. Eighteen of them were sent to Killaloo. In August, the British government enlisted uh, demobilized army officers and created the Auxiliary Police. They were noted for their brutality and reprisals, and they were created as a mobile force specifically to combat the IRA. In November 1920, the Auxiliary's Company G took over the Lakeside Hotel in Ballina and billeted more than 90 cadets and officers there. So it's a very tense time in Balanon and Killaloo at that time. Uh, there was a curfew from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. and signs were posted around the area warning residents that if they walked around with hands in their pockets, they were liable to be shot for sus suspicious activities. Shot on sight. Within days of coming to the, um, to the lakeside, on November 16th, the auxiliaries in black and tans had tortured and murdered the four so-called Scarif martyrs, shooting them on the bridge while they were supposedly trying to escape. Many people reported hearing these shots and moans and prayers of the young men who are memorialized in the plaque in the middle of the bridge today. The priest who lived next door to the Meskel said he had heard their pleas and gave them conditional absolution from his window. It's hard to believe the Meskels would have slept through all this commotion. This map shows the relative locations of the Meskel's home on the river, the red circle, uh, which overlooked the bridge, the green line, and was less than half a mile from the Lakeside Hotel where the Oxys were based. You, that's the blue circle up there. Quite likely, John and his family heard what happened on the bridge that night, um, if only because, as Dee Griffin tells me, that from her house today you can, you can hear conversations on the, grid, on the bridge. I'm sure they could hear shots. So John, meanwhile, along with most of the fishermen on the river, was an IRA supporter. He was said to have been ferrying IRA men back and forth across the river, uh, disrupting railroad signals, and thwarting an oxy raid on the eel tanks. After the shootings that night, John could see the writing on the wall. He knew he was in danger, and like others in the area, he left home and went on the run dodging the Crown forces, moving around the countryside from safe house to safe house, across the hills of Tipperary, never staying too long in one place, and never totally out of touch either. The week before Christmas, a couple of weeks later, on the cold, clear night of December 17th, in the light of a waxing crescent moon, John returned home to see his wife and children. 
He was exhausted and he collapsed in bed as soon as he arrived. But he had been seen by an informer who, re who reported him to the auxiliaries. Maybe he had brought with him a store of guns and ammunition. Maybe not. But they uh, certainly thought he'd be a juicy target. Years later, John's children said the informer was somebody he knew. Maybe someone who used to work for him. But when a friend offered to exact revenge on the man, John said no, and said that he'd hold the friend accountable if any harm came to him. And so the guy left for England within a year. Meanwhile, an hour after John arrived back home, a group of auxiliaries, some masked and some disguised with blackface, stormed up to the house, broke through the door, pulled John from his bed, and tore him violently down the stairs and out the door, smashing furniture and fittings as he went. As he clutched at the wall, the trellis, the shrubbery, they dragged him into the haggard beside the house and put him up against a haystack. His wife and children watched in terror and waited for the telltale shots. But that was not to be. Suddenly there was a loud ruckus on Main Street. It was a lorry full of black and tans returning from Bird Hill, where apparently they had spent the evening drinking and carousing and singing Irish songs and shouting, God save Ireland, to provoke the locals. Thinking it might be an IRA party come to rescue John, the raiders ran to the front of the house to investigate, leaving him in the charge of a single guard. In a flash, John overpowered the guard, jumped over the wall, scrambled about 30 feet down the uh, overgrown embankment. He crossed over to the river side of the railroad track and ran a mile straight down the river in his nightshirt and his bare feet in the light of the moon. Two or three revolver shops in, shots in his direction missed their mark as he stayed low and out of sight. John crossed over at the Nina Road to the home of his friend John Burke, where he would be cared for, get some boots and warm clothing, and soon get back on the run. Meanwhile, the raiders were furious that John had escaped. They gave Mary and the children five minutes to clear out without the chance to collect blankets or other clothing. Get the bastards out of the house and we will burn it down, the officer in charge shouted, as her son Joe recalled some 50 years later. When their mother came running down the stairs holding two-year-old Dan and a sacred heart lamp in her other hand, Joe remembered that an auxiliary sh shattered the lamp with his revolver. Dan, the baby, was so traumatized by all this, he didn't speak again for six months. And then it was only after Anthony Matthew sat with him and patiently encouraged him to say the names of the items around the room. So after being thrown out of their home, 
Mary and the children, age two to 10, five children, shaken to their core and worried sick about John, were bundled across the street into a vacant cottage. They were comforted by their neighbors, Con and Lizzie Collins, who were well-known musicians at the time and gave them some bedding and helped the family settle in for the night. The Collinses had six children of their own, so they were lucky to find a vacant place. After setting the uh, haystack on fire, the raiders tried to burn the house, first by throwing grenades, they called them bombs, in through the front windows. But when one of them bounced back against the wire mesh in the window, the raiding party thought they were being shot at in the dark and took cover. They then snuck inside set a, and set a fire that eventually reduced the house to rubble. Many accounts that have come down to us, and they varied in tone and in many details. Each one had a different take. And although there were thousands of house burnings across the country, and this I find, found very interesting, this one seemed to attract an unusual amount of attention. First of all, there was the official police version in the public records office in London. The house of Michael Miskell was being searched for arms when a heavy explosion occurred which set fire to and totally demolished the house and set fire to a small stack of hay. The house was evidently used as a store for explosives and ammunition and a considerable number of minor explosions were heard from the haystack. Four police were slightly injured. During the excitement, Meskel escaped. That was the police version. But there were many reports in newspapers across the country. Some of them were local, some of them were national, and they all treated the subject in a different way. The Nina Guardian wrote a little piece that reads like society news under the, head, under the heading of Bellina Happenings. On Friday night, a private house, the property of Mr. James McHugh, in which Mr. Meskell resided, was bombed and burned. It is understood a claim for compensation has been lodged, they said. On the other hand, there was a national paper, a Republican-leaning national paper, the, the Freeman's Journal, that tells a more complete story. Here's what they said. The residence, out offices, and also the property of Mr. John Meskell of Ballina, Killaloo, were bombed and destroyed by disguised men on Saturday morning. Mrs. Meskell and five young children got five minutes to clear out. Mr. Meskel, who was only partially dressed, was kept standing against a wall. A lorry passed and the men who were guarding him went to the door to look at it. Mr. Meskel then escaped. The Killaloo correspondent of the Independent, another national newspaper, told the same story but added that some of the raiders had their faces blackened and some were injured by their own bombs. To take it another step, a step further, the uh, Evening Herald stated indignantly that 
No member of the Crown Forces has been in any way interfered at in Ballina or Killaloo, whose residents are quiet and inoffensive people. That true? <laughs> the Herald then reported that by a remarkable coincidence, <coughs> a small statue of the Blessed Virgin escaped injury during the fire at Meskel's house. The Clare Champion added a detail. The mortar underneath the statue and on each side had been blown away. So everybody took a different take on this. Everybody had a different angle that they wanted to uh, pursue. I thought it was very interesting that of all the thousands of, uh, of house burnings around the country, this one provoked so much interest and interest in, in, in miraculous happenings. Speaking of miracles, Father James Russell. And another report of the, burn, uh, of the burning of Meskel's house has come down today via Father James Russell. He was a curate of the Catholic Church in Ballina, lived in the house adjoining the Meskels. This episode is cited in some of the many works that have been written about Father Russell, who is considered to be a, a, a healing and a very holy <coughs> priest whose canonization is still being promoted to this day. But here's a narrative about the house burning that's captured in his story. When the auxiliaries came to the house, Father Russell came out wearing his stole and with his prayer book. And he said to them, set fire to it now, but there won't be one speck of burn on my house. And he started to pray. They then set fire to Meskel's house in the belief that Father Russell's house would also be burned. But he told them that the flames would stop when they reached the corner of his house. And that is what happened. So the life was frightened out of the auxiliaries and they flew away in terror. This on the, uh, on your right, is a sketch of the two houses that accompanied a piece in the Maynooth Layman's Journal in 1953 that, uh, that read The Reign of Terror in Ballina, Killaloo. And it showed the curate's house undamaged on the left and the uh, neighboring house totally destroyed on the right. That, that is, um, still a consideration, so that, that promotion of uh, Father, Father Russell's canonization is still in the works. Meanwhile, after a terrifying night in the cottage across from their former home, Mary and the children walked about a mile up O'Brien's Lane to the home of their friends, the Romans in Valley Corrigan. They stayed there for a few days and received word that John was safe and on the run. It was a fine big dwelling. It was situated on the other side of a little stream reached by a small concrete walkway and generally unreachable by military vehicles. The Rowans were warm and welcoming 
But staying in Valley Corrigan was not a viable long-term option for a family with five little children. It was time to get started on a new life. So Mary Meskel filed a claim for compensation for 1,200 pounds for the dwelling house and contents, hay, etc., destroyed by Crown forces, as the Nina Guardian reported. And as soon as they could, Mary and the children would turn to John's employer in Castle Connell, Anthony Mackey, his uncle, for help. Uh, Anthony Mackey could certainly shelter them, but not right away. For he himself had been arrested the previous week, jailed on essentially trumped-up charges of not having a motor car permit, and of being a supporter of the doll which was a major crime. He was thrown into jail for a couple of nights and finally released after paying a hefty 25 pound fine. That would be well over a thousand dollars, a thousand euros now. Uh, but then two days after he got home, a large contingent of armed soldiers and police raided his house. As he described in his diary, some of them secretly entered the garden armed with <clears throat> rifles and revolvers, and others positioned themselves <clears throat> along the road outside of his house, while several masked men entered the house searching for him. Luckily, he wasn't there. He had gone out a short time earlier. So luckily, Anthony Mackey was at home a few days later when Pat Rowan rigged up his horse and trap and took the family down to Castle Common. Uncle Anthony recorded their arrival in his diary while he was still suffering from the lingering effects of a chill he contracted in jail. You can see here the entry reads as follows. Uh, Mrs. Meskel with her five young refugees arrived after their being burned out at, burned out at Ballina on Friday night where the armed forces of the Crown attempted by shooting to murder John Meskel in addition to burning his house and home and all his belongings. They were forced to run out of their house to save their lives. And it did save their lives. And they came to Castle Connell and they thrived. By the time of the truce in July 1921, John had joined the family at Mackey's house. Another son, Michael, was born to the family a couple of years later, and they prospered. Here they are many years later. Uh, John on the left and Mary, seated with her two daughters on the right, Maureen and Nellie, and their four sons, Patty, Joe, Dan, and Michael, standing uh, in the back along with a, another man, who I think might be Maureen's husband. It was a healthy, it was a healthy family. Um, John continued to work for Uncle, Uncle Anthony in Killaloo and Castle Connell. And Anthony Mackey left them his house, his car, some land, and some money when he died in 1939. They did all right for all that. John and Mary's oldest son, Patty, my father-in-law was a sort of aide-de-camp to his granduncle until Mackey's death. He later married Mackey's assistant, Josephine Delaney, 
and they had eight children, some of whom are still living in the village, some of whom are sitting in the audience. Hi there, Meskels. Uh, ironically, Patty went to work for the ESB in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, managing the Killaloo fishery, just like his father before him. Anthony Mackey's house in 2022. It is now listed in the National Inventory of, uh, the National Architectural Inventory of Ireland. It's called Mescals of Laca. And it was said to have been built circa 1810. Laura Mescal, Dan's widow, still lives there. She closed the shop in 2016. But we still remember Anthony Mackey. And we still remember John Meskel. And it's nice to know that John Meskel will not be forgotten in Ballina. That's largely thanks to you guys and uh, the Killaloo Ballina Historical Society, history, local history society. Here's a, you've seen this, the sign that they created. This is another picture of it. It'll go somewhere near the site on Main Street where John Meskel's house once stood, where Dee Griffin lives today. And it brings my story full circle. I got curious about this story in the 1990s when there was still an empty space on Main Street in Ballina. And 25 years later, I'm happy to have contributed some small part to pulling this story together. What might have been lost is there for all to see. And that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. <laughs> Anyone, I want to ask, I want to open this up for questions, but I would also like to ask if anyone in the audience knows anything about John Mesko about the incident in, uh, during the War of Independence or about the fishery. Does anybody have any of that, uh, that old information? And then I'd like to just, uh, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to try my best to answer them. Do you have any inkling as to why there was so much press around that house? Do you think it was anything to do with the priest or the fact that he escaped, that John escaped? Or what's your feeling around that, you, or you don't know? I have, that, that, that's a um, kind of a very recent realization. Okay. And I honestly don't know. Okay. I, um... Could you repeat Sorry. Oh, sorry, sorry. The um, question was, like, why did, did Darlene have any inclination as to why there was so much press around the burning of his house? Was it to do with the fact that he escaped? Or was it anything to do with the priest stopping the burning of his own house? Or what was the, what was the reason? Was there any inclination as to why there was so much press? Yeah, I, I doubt it had to do with the priest because I don't think that was widely no. uh, disseminated. But uh, I've, I've seen a couple of other reports as well that were fairly accurate or fairly true to my story. Yeah. <laughs> you know? 
I assume they're they're fairly accurate, but um, I I honestly don't know why so many newspapers picked it up. Um, because it, you would think that perhaps they might have um, known of John's relationship to Anthony Mackey, who was very well known uh, throughout the country and very well known to be an advanced nationalist. But there's no mention of him. Okay. So. Uh, so, I don't know, that's, a, that's yeah. a puzzle. I'll see if I can <laughs> find any more information about that. Anybody else? And do you know if Mary got compensation for the burning of the house? <laughs> I think she did. I do not know. I haven't been able to nail that down. Um, it seemed that uh, a lot of people whose uh, dwellings were, whose residences were, or businesses were uh, damaged by the British forces did receive compensation. And they, both the British and Irish governments worked for several years to resolve all the cases, but I don't know if they got it. That would have been a hefty sum. Yes. And, and I would wonder if Mary Meskell would get that money or if uh, James Keogh would get the money, because yeah, exactly. he owned the house. Yeah. But, um, but I do know that she, while they were up in Valley Corrigan, she filed for compensation right away, so. Um, smart lady. Uh, John Meston was known as Zigzag Meston, I believe, as a nickname. Uh, I think that came about from the manner in which he uh, ran up the railway tracks under fire. Is that true? Or is the way you related the story just there, you described that he got onto the riverside of the railway tracks and made a beeline away from the gunfire, which is what I would do. But there was a local story or local legend that his name was Zigzag Mescal on the basis that he zigzagged away from the right. gunfire. That's a story I was told. Is that? That he was. <laughs> That's an interesting question. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the story I was told was that he was zigzagging across the railroad tracks. Further consideration, it seems that the, um, the, the raiders who had come to the wall and discovered that he was gone uh, would have been able to see him if he were cross crisscrossing the railroad tracks. And so um, at least it's a contention of his son, Joe, that he ran along the water straight down uh, and, and kept to the bank so that they couldn't see him. So, yes. The zigzag. So we, we refer to them as zigzag. Okay. It could be a pop talk edition later. <laughs> zigzag time. I, I think at least uh, one of the Mescals had nightmares about somebody jumping in the shin in the middle of December in only his nightshirt. That doesn't work for wondering how you went about your research for the book. How did you, where did you start, kind of, how did you? Oh, I started with John Pierce, who was just such a, somebody, I think, um, somebody in the family uh, told me about a historian in Killaloo who was writing about local history, and that was Sean. Uh, 
And he was, he was just so gracious. He met with me for a whole afternoon and then he, he took me over to McKeough's <coughs> hardware store where I was able to get photocopies of some of his materials. Um, he's the one, for example, who had found about uh, Mary, Mary Meskell's um, claim for compensation. And uh, lots of news articles, lots of, uh, of other uh, clippings. And that's where I started and I just followed the trails of which there were many, there still are many, but the fun is in, is in trying to figure it all out. Yes. Was there any record of any of the auxiliaries staying on in Belmont-Killu after, after those times? I would say that the gentleman that we had here speaking last night, uh, Ger Brown, he has, on Clare Library, he has done a massive amount of research um, and he, he has research available, we're going to put the link on our website, of all the auxiliaries and all the men and women that fought from County Clare that fought in the war. He has all the, the auxiliaries, he has records of the, the station that was here. And I, if I remember rightly, some of them actually were pensioned and stayed. If I remember rightly, there was one of them in the, behind the church in Killaloo. So there are some of them around. So we can get that, um, the link to his information there to have a look through them. A lot of them went away, of course, but some of them did stay. They got their pension and they stayed here. those links up so yeah you can you can have a look at that and see uh, you, you're not looking for relations or anything though no, <laughs> no. Are we done? and just to mention that uh, Sean Kearse's daughter Una is here tonight <laughs> your father was just a delight to with me. He, he was just so good to me okay well thank you so much Darlene that was absolutely fabulous and it's so lovely to hear the local side of it and the family side of it, that it's not just, you know, out of newspapers or whatever. It's fantastic. So thank you so much for coming and sharing that with us. Thank you very much. And as we said, the books are available here. Um, they're 10 euro if anyone wants to buy those books. They're, they're, it's a fabulous read, really is a fabulous read. And in terms of ourselves, we have brochures down the back that's commemorating the decade of centenary. So it's all about the, the three lectures that we're holding. So we had Ger Brown last night, Darlene, and we have Darren tomorrow at 12 o'clock. And there's just some information on that and some local recollections, recollections of people that are no longer with us, just recorded talking about the tens, uh, mostly the black and tens and, and them going into their houses and stuff. So please take one on the way out. Um, and I just have to say again, thank you so much, Darlene. And well done.